Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole Nussbaumer Nafflick. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole, and I am here today with John Schwabish. John, hello. Hi, Cole. John is author of Better Presentations, editor of an upcoming book, Elevate the Debate. He's an economist specializing in data visualization and presentation at the Urban Institute, and a good friend of mine. John, I can't believe that we actually haven't sat down together <laughs> we haven't and done, done this. this before. We haven't done this before, and in person. Yeah. Like, if we were to do it, we'd probably be on the phone or some sort of online Skyping situation, but in person. Yeah, in person, so much more fun. So for way more fun, those yeah. listening, we are at the Urban Institute in oh. DC in this like actually super fun recording sort of studio. Yeah, deal. our own recording studio. Studio. We have our own podcast. We do lots of videos. So we have in our brand new building, we have this put in purposefully because last at our last building, it was more like a closet that we sort of like. Sounds like my normal right, podcasting. Yeah, exactly, place. like egg cartons on the wall. Yeah. And this is an actual studio. So yeah. Very nice. <laughs> I was trying to think as I was prepping for our conversation today of when we met. And I can remember where we met. I'll be curious if you remember this as well. Interesting. So it was definitely in DC. Yes. We went to some restaurant. Do you remember the theme of the restaurant? It was some sort of like pig, yeah. pork, meat. <laughs> I think restaurant. I think they actually only served pig at the restaurant. Wow. Um, how times have changed. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it must have been, I couldn't figure out the date exactly, but this was like circa 2012, 2013. Yeah, that sounds right. But why, I don't remember why we ended up meeting up. I, I was in town doing some sort of work and I think I must've had a public workshop then because I think that you reached out and said, Mm -hmm. Hey, saw you're going to be in town. We should get together because we'll have things that we want to talk about. That sounds very much like what I would do, especially around that time. Cause that's when I was sort of just getting into this field and I met Kim Reese okay. uh, outside uh, the where I used to work at the Congressional Budget Office, and I said, let's just grab coffee. And I had attended an Andy Kirk workshop in town, and and little did I know that uh, the woman I had lunch with uh, during the lunch break was Anne Emery. Um, uh, and I didn't know that at the time. Like, yeah. we, you yeah, know, and all, that, these and all these connections. Later, yeah, right. right. So, um, okay. So, good. So, we're thinking 2012. Yeah, I think so. so. And I remember, and I don't remember if it was that conversation or if it was a separate instance, but I remember at one point you saying, wouldn't it be fun to write a book? But I don't want to write a book by myself. If I write a book, I want someone to write a book with, do you maybe want to write a book at some point? Because a book is going to be too much work. Too much work. work. Fast forward to today, you have a book, Mm -hmm. Better Presentations, that came out, was it last year? Was that 2016. 2016 2016, already. Okay. So 2016, you have Elevate the Debate, which Mm -hmm. you're editing, which is coming out. Comes out in January. What changed, right? How did you get from a book's too much work to (laughs) having a couple going on now? Well, what happened was I wrote um, uh, an article for the Journal of Economic Perspectives as an economist doing data visualization. I was asked to write an article about data visualization. So it's, I think the name of it is an economist's guide to data visualization. So I wrote that article, um, you know, not an article that you would see quite often in the economics literature. Following that, I got a call from Columbia University. What sort of things did you cover in the article? So it's pretty much your, your, your basic 
introductory stuff, which, which I still teach and use today. So I follow these, these three guidelines or principles that I like to use that I talk about in, in better presentations in the chapter on DataViz, but it's simple things like make sure you're showing your data, make sure you're getting rid of all the clutter, you know, uh, make sure you're integrating what you, uh, the text with the graphics so that things are holding together. So it was, it was a pretty much like an intro primer to DataViz, but it used a lot of examples from the economics literature. So I was really trying to meet people where they are in that, in that field. Sure. So then Columbia reached out and they said, oh, we saw your article. Would you like to write a data visualization book? And I said, no, I don't really know if I am ready for that. And I, and I wasn't really when sure. When would this have been roughly time-wise? So I think this was like, so the article came out in 2014. So it was probably like, probably late 2014, early 2015. Okay. And at the time, I don't think your book was out yet, but I think you were working on your book. Yeah, mine came out fall 2015. Right, so I think you were working on your book. Yep. I think Andy Kirk yeah, was working yeah. on his book. There were a whole bunch of books in the works that I knew about, and I didn't feel like I was quite ready. A, I didn't have the bandwidth, I don't think, at the time. Yeah. And I wasn't ready to write that book because I think I was still a little bit in my head trying to figure out my own perspective on things. And also, how do you write a data viz book without talking about tools, which I've since mm -hmm. figured out how to do. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the, in many cases, the right way to do like your book and Andy's book is just two examples are not, they're tool agnostic, which yeah. I think is the, the way you have to do these general educational books. You have to be tool agnostic. So I said, I don't really think I'm ready to write a data viz book, but I really want to write a book on presentation skills because there is an opening in the market, I saw more of an opening in the market to write something that would help people that do the kind of work that I do, do a better job talking. And so that's how that book came about. And, and so you basically repitched what they came to you with to say, yeah, I repitched. Not that they, one, said, let's do this. they said, that sounds good, but since you have an idea, you need to now propose that to us as opposed to us just saying yes. Yeah. So I proposed that to them. And my uh, editor was and what great. was the level of detail there? Did you had you already sort of figured out your structure? Yeah, I already had, had it in my head because I, I have, uh, you know, I'd been teaching a few workshops in presentation skills and the, and the workshop basically tried to take people from the beginning to the end of the presentation process. Okay. So let's write an outline. Right. Let's think about what our goals are with the talk, what we want to say, what are the sections, right? Let's actually not just boot up PowerPoint or Keynote or whatever and start typing. Let's formulate an idea, right? Similar to what you talk about in both of your books on DataViz. Then the second part is, okay, let's make this, if we need to, let's make the slides, you know, let's pick the right images. Let's uh, not use bullet points. Let's figure out some other ways. And then the last part of the book is let's actually give the presentation. So mm -hmm. what are the techniques and strategies and tools we need? to give a good presentation. So that was the workshop. And I actually, I felt more so than I did with DataViz at the time that that would lend itself really well to a book because mm -hmm. it's, there's three parts. They're all well, you know, sort of self-contained and I could meet again, meet people where they are because I'm not a designer. So when I talk about making good, well-designed slides, I'm not really thinking like a designer, right? I'm not opening Illustrator or Photoshop. I'm thinking like an economist who's presenting a, a research paper on food stamp participation or disability insurance. So how do I get images and graphs that match the content? So it felt more natural to me. And I was fortunate enough to find an editor who kept me on track. So I would sort of veer off into these little areas of okay. like, well, I should talk about this whole line of things. She'd be like, no, 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 no nobody, nobody cares about 
like going in depth on color theory, like keep it short, keep it sweet. So, um, so it was, a, it was actually turned out to be a really great experience and it helped as I'm sure you found it informs the teaching Absolutely. as you're writing things down. You're like, Oh, okay. I really need to. Well, and in both directions, yeah. right? Because once you've taught for a bit, then the writing becomes in many ways easier because you've already said these words or words yeah. like these right. before. Right, and you have, the, to... you have that actual, like, you know the right sentence that really conveys that that complex idea in a in sort of concise, concise way. And then you, you sort of take what you're working on in the writing, you implement it into the teaching, and then you come back to the writing again and say, okay, so this that I thought was going to work well, sort of, I need to break this up, expand it a little bit. So... It, it, but at the time, I wasn't really ready to write that data this book. But the presentation book felt great. And I feel like I have said, I felt like that book really said what I wanted to say. And you know? who did you want to say it to? Who's the intended audience? So the intended audience. And say your subtitle for me, because I think that gets a part of it. <laughs> what is the subtitle? I'm, I'm blanking. So it's, no, here, oh, you have it. You have it. So I don't have to remember it. Because I, all right. So it's Better Presentations, A Guide for Scholars, Researchers, and Wonks, which took a long time to get to, by the way. So we started with Better Presentations. Yeah. We went through this whole thing. I always think about, um, do you remember that movie, um, Julie and Julia? Yeah. Um, where there's a whole part about like taping the, the little cards on the wall to figure out the name of the book. Okay. It's kind of how I ended up with taping names on words and trying to do word association. But anyway, that's an aside. The, the book is really geared towards the kind of people that I work with here at Urban, right? It's it's geared towards people who work with data, who do sophisticated analysis, who need to take that analysis and they need to communicate it either to other researchers for different reasons. You might just be furthering the field or you might be sharing data. You might be asking for more data, whatever it is. But you're also talking to foundations, for example. You might be talking to funders. You're also talking to stakeholders and policymakers and thought leaders. And so... You know, one of the things that that happened to me when I moved to urban was I came from government where most of my peers were presenting at academic conferences. Yep. So it was a very specific niche way to go. Right. The director is the only one who really talks to Congress. Right. I come to urban and it's a world where we have to you know, we're doing more. And so in some ways we're doing more to pitch our work to policymakers and stakeholders. So I came fairly naively to the Urban Institute thinking that people are good presenters because this is what they do. They have to sort of go out and sell the ideas. But it turns out that researchers at Urban are just like researchers at CBO that like were in the data and not so much thinking about the communication uh, side of things. So I spent a lot of time here talking to those types of people that to basically make the case that more or less saying, as a researcher, I know you don't think of yourself like a marketer or someone who's selling a product, right? You're not selling widgets, you're not selling iPhones, but you are selling ideas, yep. right? And so that's the thing, that's the way you need to start thinking when well, you're presenting. And that was going to be my next question because that that is the thing, right? I think for a lot of people listening, they get this, they get it, right? That, right. that you need to be able to communicate what you've done in order for what you've done to promote action or yeah. derive some sort of value from it. But in like, how, how do you, when you've got resistance, right? So take mm -hmm. Urban, for example, here, how do you, how do you get people to want to spend time on that part? Well, part of it is to get people to recognize that it's a learned skill. Yeah. It's like it's like everything else. It's the same with, with data storytelling, same with data visualization. It's not like we're born knowing how to read and make bar charts. We have to learn that. Same thing with presentations. You need to show people that there is a better way. You demonstrate how you can go about doing that. And you, and you show them a couple of things. One, they don't have to do it all on their own. We have a fairly large communications department here. Part of my job 
is to help people do a better job with their slides. And two, it's really not that hard, right? To say, look, instead of having this slide, let's take a simple example. Instead of having this slide with five bullet points on it, let's make instead of five slot, one slide, let's make it five slides. Mm -hmm. So you haven't really changed anything inherent. I mean, you and I do this sort of thing all the time, right? It's the same slide at the end of the day, but you've just broken it up. It's easier for the, for the audience. Now we can take it a step further. Let's, instead of having five separate sentences, let's put a picture instead or a graph instead of those five points. And what often happens for presenters is they don't, they use those five bullet points, those five sentences as a crutch yep. to make sure that they remember They're to talk about, the, yeah, it's a teleprompter, right? To remember those five things. Whereas if you encourage them and show them how to practice and how to make better slides, as they practice, they then don't need that crutch as much because they are now more familiar with the content in the way in which they present it, which is very different than how they you know write it in the report. Yeah. So for me, convincing researchers how to do a better job, a lot of it is demonstration and evidence to say, look, look at this person, your colleague here who believes in doing this as a better job. Look how she went out in front of Senator so-and-so or this member of Congress. And those people bought into these ideas. It's not only because of the presentation, yeah. obviously, right? The content is is the primary thing. But they, Is the content the primary thing, though? Because this well, has been an okay, interesting so, yeah. thing for me, right? Because if you take a presentation that's being given live, right. there is the content, but right. then there's also the delivery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's a true evaluation that you'd want to do, right? So yes. you have the same exact content, a good presenter versus a bad presenter. And so when you know how which, that's going to, well, play you know out, how that's going to get, right? but, but then, but so then if you flip it around yep. and you have a good presenter, two good presenters, one, one presenting good content versus bad content. Yeah. Right. So, so I think it is still content, you know, content is still king because even if I give a great presentation, but I'm telling you something that doesn't make any sense. But or, this is where it comes back to audience, right? And you talked about this yeah. and talking being specific about who who is your audience out of these right. potential groups of audiences. Because if you can make it matter to them. Absolutely. And so as a good example for like what we do here, right? If I need to go raise money for a project or if I'm going to try to convince, say, a local government that they should spend money on such and such a pro uh, program. If I go to them and I have a proposal for, for a program that costs $10 million, and their annual budget is a million dollars, right? I'm not going yeah. to where they are, right? So, so it absolutely matters and always thinking about that audience. But for researchers, it's about convincing them that they can do it. Yep. It is going to take more time to get it right, but it's not going to be, you know, double the amount of time that you spend on the entire project and to demonstrate that there is a return on investment to it. And I think actually... One thing that I've seen is that it's easier in some ways to demonstrate the ROI for DataViz than it is for presentations. Oh, I think it's tough in both cases. Right? No, it's tough. But but if you think about it, yeah. if I post a DataViz in a blog or just on its own and I get a lot of Twitter likes and you know traffic and there's a lot of web hits on it, that's sort of a quantifiable, measurable thing. Mm -hmm. When I give a good presentation there's in some ways less of that, you know, you might get people come up and say, Oh, great job. Or, you know, I really learned a lot, but I think there's a, it's, it's a little bit harder to demonstrate the ROI and the presentation side of things, which is why the evidence I think is still harder to come by. It's harder to say, look, I gave a great presentation and therefore I got the grant or the policymaker took this project up. 
Whereas someone could say, yeah, but the content was really good. So it was going to go any, you know, it was going to be taken up anyways. Hmm. Interesting. Because that's, it's interesting because you, you frame the lessons in the book and and when we're speaking as primarily being aimed at researchers, right? Because it's who you work with primarily. But all of the things that you cover in the book, which I recommend frequently, it's, it's the same in the business world. And if it's an analyst needing to communicate or a manager needing to communicate, that it's these same sort of things that people are struggling with. Yeah. Except for like (laughs) the one part of the book where where I have like, I talk about like a table of regression results. Like that's the, the one part of the book where I'm like, yeah, this is for a very specific audience right here. Yeah, but, but yeah. There, I mean, there will be those audience, yeah. you know, there's the yeah. niches for <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah, for sure. But what, uh, for someone who is, they are going to start a presentation tomorrow, mm-hmm. where should they start? What's the first step? So I think the first step is to not do what they probably do, which is to open PowerPoint or whatever their tool is, software tool, and start copying over topic sentences and copying and pasting graphs and figures and, and pictures and whatever it is, but instead to sit down with a piece of paper and a pen or Microsoft Word or Pine or whatever their, whatever their tool is and to write the outline for the talk, right? What do you want to say? What do you want people to do with it? So I have a little worksheet that I use, I still use, that I designed for myself. It's like a two-page worksheet that just, it forces me to say, to answer some key questions. Like what is the headline? What do I want people to do? What is the opening paragraph of the talk? What is the closing paragraph? It's it's just simple things, but what it does is it forces me to be strategic and purposeful and and in some ways cautious about what I want people to do with the talk. Because, you know, trying to get a policymaker to adopt a policy is a very different audience and a type of talk than if I'm talking at an academic conference and I just want pe- and I want people to see the work that I'm doing and I want to further the field in some particular way. It's very different. So we're all taught in grade school how to write a book report and we're not taught to read the book and start writing. We have to write an outline. And yet, as we grow up, we get away from outlines as we write. Well, because it almost feels like it's more efficient when we start with our tools, right. which is dive counter, in and get Yeah, And it's also kind of, in some ways, it's the fun part, right? Like you've had this like 50-page paper, let me turn it into 10 slides, which yep. is not as much. And I can just, I can just, you know, start hacking away at all the words and the graphs. But it turns out that that is not the way that we're going to create effective presentations because what it's doing in that workflow where we take a report and basically convert it to slides is that we treat we end up treating the slides as basically a shorter document. Mm-hmm. And and what I say throughout the book over and over again and I and it's sort of like a mantra I use in my workshops is a presentation is a fundamentally different form of communication than a written report. Yeah. And if you can get that into your head that it's just fundamentally different, then you approach it in a different way. And if you approach it from the perspective of the audience as opposed to from the presenter's perspective, you you think of everything in a different way. We're all, we've all been members of an audience and we've all seen bad talks and yet we repeat a lot of those mistakes over and over again. So what are we, some of those mistakes? Okay, let's see. So we have all the text yes. on the slide. We've teleprompter, about. yeah. Telepro- teleprompter right. of text. We've got, uh, oh, oh, filler, filler words, filler Silence. phrases too. Oh. Filler phrases too. Yes. Right. The essentially statistically speaking, what else do we have? We have, using things that are barriers, physical barriers between us and the audience. So I never like, I don't like to use podiums, okay. especially with the podium where your computer is on top of the podium. You're standing behind it. it. You're standing behind it. <laughs> you're like tall you, enough that yeah, you right. yeah, get, away, I can get away with it. Yeah. My face would get blocked. <laughs> There's this huge pillar. <laughs> I think we have the, you know, when it comes to slide design, I always feel bad when someone's put a picture up 
that they've clearly stolen. It has like the shutterstock watermark and it's stretched. And actually that was one of the, for me personally, that was one of the most valuable sections in your book was where to go to get yeah. good images. And I, I'm, yeah, have uh, been guilty of some of the things that you uh, <laughs> downshot in that section. So I learned a bit there. Yeah, that, that one, that's, that's the one that makes me the most sad, I think, is like, oh, yeah. like you, you, you really like that picture of the Golden Gate Bridge. And that's what you had to settle on, whatever came up in Google, right? Which is, which is the other thing with respect to tools. It's only maybe the only tool we'll talk about. But like the recommendation I have for a lot of people is not to use Google as your image source. Mm -hmm. It's good to do your sort of basic search, which I also would encourage people to not start there. So if you're looking for an image that shows, you know, economic growth, right? You type that into, you know, type growth into Google, you're going to get pictures of plants and trees and probably some... 3D bar charts or something, right? Sure. Yeah. But to think about what you want the picture to be and then go find it. But the thing about Google is that it's not particularly great at recognizing who owns what photograph. Right. So if you put that photograph of the Golden Gate Bridge up on your site and it's a picture you took, you own it. If I steal it from you and I put it on my website and then someone Googles Golden Gate Bridge and they grab the one that I stole from you, they're not off the hook. And Google's not great at discerning the, those two photographs. Well, so, and I think Google just has a standard, like there may be copyright. Right, right. It's sort of like, this. and it has yep. like a, it has a filter for copyright, but it, you know, if I don't tag it on my site, then yep. it doesn't really know. So where should people go? So my favorite site is a one called Unsplash. So it's like splash in a pool, but un. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know the origin of that term, which would be interesting. Mm -hmm. But the reason I like Unsplash the most is all the photos on the site are very large and they're very high quality. And they're also uh, tagged as a license is uh, CC0 or Creative Commons Zero, which means you can do anything you want with those photographs mm -hmm. without having to pay, without having to add attribution. I usually add attribution just because it's nice. You're you know? a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you try to give people <laughs> some credit, but it's also the library is growing very quickly. So now you'll see like uh, NASA has their photos go on to Unsplash. So NASA mm -hmm. photos are in the public domain in the US. So you can use those for whatever. So I like Unsplash. There's ones that are similar to that, like Pexels and Pixabay, similar sort of Creative Commons uh, zero where you can just grab them and you want to make t-shirts out of them, out of those pictures and sell them. You can do that. Then there are the paid sites like mm -hmm. Shutterstock and iStock and Corbis and Getty. Of course, now you're paying for things. Yep. I like the free stuff. That's why my wife doesn't let me take the kids to the auto show anymore because I come back with all the free <laughs> frisbees and keychains and stuff. But um, Wasn't sure where you were going right. with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I buy a big BMW. Right? <laughs> uh, so I, I like those three sites in particular are, are my favorites. I mean, you can go to Flickr and there's a related site called, there's one called Morgue File and there's another one that I am blanking on the name right now. But if you go, if you go to Flickr, you can search through their API, you can search through their library, and then you can also filter by the, by the way people have tagged them. And the thing about Flickr is once you put a photo on there, it's actually, they automatically assign a Creative Commons license to everything mm. and you have to physically change it. So if someone hasn't thought about changing it, then you can go, you can go use it. So other common mistakes, presentations, other common mistakes. Well, there's some that are 
rules, I'd say, that are meant to be broken. Okay. Like uh, facing the screen is similar to like the podium, mm -hmm. right? Or having a computer in front of you. However, there are always these talks like Hans Rosling's talk, the, yeah. his TED talk, right? He does all, he breaks all these quote unquote rules. Well, because when you're facing the screen, it really, it comes down to how you're mic'd up because part of it, if you face the screen and people can't hear you, that's a problem. Absolutely. But if you can face the screen in a way that's, right. yeah, preventing emphasis and people can still well, hear you. Well, it's also, it, I mean, I think the most important thing is that you care about your content, right? So, you know, the Hans Rosling talk, the yeah. famous Hans Rosling talk, you know, he stands behind a computer for a bunch of it. He talks really fast. He but stands, he's so but he's so excited, right? <laughs> he faces the screen and his hands are up in the air, but he's yeah. so excited. And so who cares, right? You have to care about the content because if you don't but care about the content. is that another place where the presentation of it over Over the content? Yeah, I don't know. Oh, that's a good question. I don't I'm know. Just putting it Well, I think, but I think the enthusiasm for the content well, that's is in some ways separate, right? Because right? if you don't care about yeah. your topic, there's no way you're going to make anyone else right, exactly. care about Right, exactly. Yeah, if you don't care about it, then... There's no reason anyone else should care about it, which I know is hard to do, especially for uh, researchers who are showing like comp like it's but, hard to talk about econometric theory. Well, no, but if, if this is something they've been living and breathing right, for yeah, how yeah. long, yeah. That, that but but it's and and it's how do you get people to come to your side? How do you get them to yes. buy in your ideas? Right, even though what you might be presenting on like healthcare cost projections may not be the most exciting content in the world. Yeah but you have been working on it and you have decided that it's important enough to spend time working on it. Therefore you should be excited about it. And if you're not, then, then no one else is going to be excited about it. Yeah. The other, this is a minor thing, but I have seen a lot of people do this is when you're presenting, take stuff out of your pockets. Maybe oh. this is more for men maybe. Cause we yeah, have, that's a good tip. we have yeah, more, probably more for men where you get the bulky. We have, like, and we also yeah. have bigger pockets as yes. we learned from the puddings yeah. piece few years ago. Um, <laughs> I had, a, I had a professor in graduate school who had like a phone and I'm talking like, this is, you know, early 2000s. So like, you a know, big phone. a big phone, yeah. <laughs> and keys and change. And like, you could hear as he walked, like everything would jingle around. So, you know, minor stuff like that, like to, like to get rid of that stuff. The other one that comes to mind, we were talking about microphones earlier before we, before yeah. we came on as we were getting set up for, for lav, lavalier mics where you have, you know, the little card pack battery pack that connects to a wire and connects to a clip, you know, for men, that's usually pretty easy. We just, if we were in a button down shirt, we just clip it right there for yeah. women. For women, it can get a little different. tricky. There's like, you know, you, yeah, you need a pocket or you need a right. belt or you need something. something to, Otherwise they end up like clipping it to the back <laughs> of a dress. Right, a dress yeah. right. yes. Or you're holding it and sort of defeats the whole purpose. Yeah. yeah. I think for, for me, it's things, and I think I follow the same approach a little bit in my data viz. It's things that distract people from getting to your core message, yeah. right? And you talk about this all the time on your blog, right? That here's this bar chart. It doesn't take a lot to take a simple bar chart to make it just better, right? You know, you spend a lot of time like stripping out grid lines and axes and data markers and data labels and make the title active and all that stuff, right? A lot of it's really not rocket science. It's right. just thinking about how do I get people as quickly as possible to compare the first bar to the last bar and that's it. Yep. Same thing with presentations. How do you get people to see that this is the core part of your idea instead of forcing them to read this thing as if they're reading a report? Well, and for you as the presenter of the material to be assisting in that, not inhibiting that in yeah. any way, right? right? Which comes back to these distractions. Right, right. Things, so why? It's fillers or phones in the right. pocket. I think, I think we think as humans, I think we think we're all really good multitaskers, but we know like that's not how our brains actually work. Like we're bad multitaskers, right? It's why we should not text and drive. It's like my one yep. 
safety message to, to your listeners, right? Don't text and drive, text right? Yeah. Um, we're really bad at multitasking. Yeah. And so when you ask people to look at the screen and read and listen to you talk simultaneously, they're not getting the information you want them to get. And what about, so I feel like a lot of what we've talked about have, has been framed in you're standing on a stage, you're mic'd up, you are giving a presentation, right. capital P. What about more informally, right? I'm in an office with my colleagues and yeah. I'm presenting something. What if, what of the stuff that we've talked about, what carries over and what are different things that we should be considering? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, and I think we can think of this in, in, even maybe even finer, narrower terms, because the way I think about it, right, is like a department seminar where it is a presentation, but maybe there's 10, 15, 20 people in the room. But we can even think about a smaller group, you know, there's six of us and we're sitting at a table and maybe there's a TV or there's a computer screen we're looking at. I would say at least in that, that last case, that latter, that latter case of there's a very small group of us. In that case, it might be, you might be better off actually having physical handouts where we're actually going to work on paper together as opposed to me putting something on a screen. I don't know. You say that and I just You don't like paper? Cringe. No, because as soon as you hand something to someone, they can start flipping through it. Right, and now but you've what lost if, control but, over but, this. But we're at this table. But what if yeah. we have four people around this table and we're working through some. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. So we're sort of yeah. working through something. So I guess, you know, Nancy Duarte, who has these great books, Resonate, and there's the new one, Data Store. Uh, Data Store. She was on your show, yep. right? Um, she makes this really good differentiation between a presentation that you are intending to convince someone of mm -hmm. some case or argument and a presentation that's more of a meeting where you're working together to come to yep. a solution yep. or some agreement. And those are two very different things. And so when I think about the four people here sitting around a table, I'm thinking about this scenario in which we're working together towards an outcome different from that department seminar where I'm saying, here's the thing I want you to buy into. I want you to, to listen to agree with. So I would agree in those cases, like my, my strategy is when I go into a department seminar type of room where someone's printed out their slides, mm -hmm. which is like the worst, yeah. I sit in the back of the room and I just wait. Like, and I watch how long does it take the majority of people to start flipping through the slides? Yeah, whether you've lost them, right? Like, the not even five minutes. Like, in every, even if it's a good presentation, it, you're right. It's in people's hands and they're going to start flipping through them. So I think the other point to make is that every meeting you have is a presentation, right? So I have a, a colleague at my former office and she, you know, she's a senior manager there and she has lots of more of the junior staff come in. They'll call for a meeting with her and say, you know, I want to talk to you about this project. And they'll sit down and she'll say, okay, what's the question? You know, what, what are the issues? And they'll sort of stumble and stammer. Mm -hmm. And it is a presentation, right? Especially with a senior manager or boss or whatever, CEO, right? Like you need to prepare for those. It is just like practicing your talk in front of a, in front of a thousand people yeah. if you're presenting. Well, and that's one, the chance to practice and, and hone the, those right, skills. That's right. Yep. So I think, you know, in some ways, everything is a presentation. Everything is a chance to practice and to hone your ideas and get to the core of the idea. It's one of the things that, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about, especially to folks here at Urban and, and other places that are similar in that researchy vein, is that we're not dumbing things down, right? We're not talking, you know, not sometimes we're talking to non-specialists, but it's not about dumbing it down. It's about what is the core thing? What is the core of the idea that you want to convey to people? Yep. And let's get to that core idea and then let's go from there.
Yeah, and actually, maybe this is a good uh, pivot point to talk a little bit more about Elevate the Debate, yeah. the book that you've edited uh, that's coming out in January. It's one of the things, I haven't had a chance to read it, but have had some snippets of it, but one of the things that you cover in the book is the pyramid philosophy. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about what that is yeah. and how to use it? Yeah, so, um, so let me tell you a little bit about the book so people get a sense. So um, the Urban Institute is almost 500 people mostly researchers, sociologists, economists, demographers, political scientists. We have a communications team of about 50 people. Some of those members of the communications team sit in some of the 10 different centers that we have. So they're sort of the conduit between the communications efforts for say in our justice group with the communications team. So we had done a series of workshops from our communications team for a different number of different groups some social workers, some people working on housing discrimination. And so we did these full day workshops to help them do a better job communicating. So I would teach a little hour on data viz and someone would teach an hour on how to write blog posts. And someone would spend half hour showing people how to use Twitter, right? Cause if you've never done it before, right? It's can be overwhelming. Yep. So you have to sort of, these are all learned skills. Well, and it's different, I think in a professional setting versus yeah. a personal. Yeah. yeah, right, exactly. Like Facebook, most people use Facebook you know, most people with, our age use Facebook, right, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. but it's friends and family, right? It's yeah. not professional. Yeah. Whereas if you're going into LinkedIn or Twitter, you know, you're probably, if you want to use it professionally, it's different. So anyway, we, we did these series of workshops and then we decided, well, we can, we can help more people if we put all this down in writing. So we have this eight chapter book and each chapter deals with a different aspect of communicating data, communicating research, communicating analysis. So it's chapter on data viz, a chapter on writing good blogs, a chapter on how do you talk to reporters, chapter on how each do you- Each written by different- Each written by a different uh, different uh, member of our communications team. So there's a chapter on uh, strategic planning. There's a chapter on uh, social media techniques. So we have all these these eight chapters. And what drives, what drives the book, sort of the underlying philosophy is this pyramid philosophy that you mentioned. So you have to imagine a pyramid which and is not we'll the, link to the visual of right. this in the show and, notes. And it's not hard to imagine yeah. a pyramid. It's just a triangle. Okay. So imagine a triangle. And at the bottom of the triangle, we place the most technical, dense working paper, white paper. So right? this is the base. Of this the is the base. Okay. So this has all the math. Mm -hmm. It has all the formulas, all the dense, gory detail. Okay. We work ourselves up just a little bit and we get to peer-reviewed journal articles. So still a lot of math, still a lot of numbers, but maybe not as much because you don't need appendix one, two, three, four, and five. Then we go up a little bit further and we have, maybe we have a fact sheet or an issue brief. So it's five pages or two pages. Then we have an op-ed, say in the Times or the Washington Post. Then we have convenings and meetings. And at the very, very, and then we have interviews. And at the very, very top, we have social media. So we have tweets, Facebook posts, what have you. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's our first pyramid. So we go from the bottom is the most technical thing all the way up to the top, which is that sort of shortest core of the idea type thing. Yep. If you flip that pyramid upside down and put it right next to it, we call that the audience pyramid. So that's the size of your audience. So, and I don't think this is gonna surprise anybody who's listening to this, <laughs> you know, the six people read the technical dense working paper, but more are gonna read the fact sheet, more read the issue brief, even more read the blog posts, and ten, you know, hundreds, thousands, if you're lucky, tens of thousands or millions, read the tweet. And so what we do is we pair these two together. And what the philosophy says here is that you are using social media, just as an example, to reach a lot more people. Yep. 
but it's all rooted all the way down in the dense, sophisticated, in-depth analysis. Well, and that's the thing I really like about this, because back to your point on simplifying or not being about oversimplifying, yeah. right? You get to the tweet to the pithy thing, but it has this depth of analysis right. that, that has to happen before you can get Right, exactly. There. And so what we talk about in the book is like, okay, yes, we have this tweet that says, you know, check out, well, to make it simple, check out this report on, or this interactive data viz on criminal justice reform. Okay, so that's the tweet. So you click in the in the link and you get to an urban page that has, you know, maybe a long form immersive sort of storytelling piece. There's an interactive map in there maybe that you can, you know, look around through or whatever. We will sometimes have fact sheets. So we try to meet people in the local area. So maybe we have, you know, fact sheets for each of the 50 states or it's the three cities that are in this study. And then at the very bottom, you can download the data or you click and go to the 30, 50, 200 page report where again, only a few people are gonna get there, but those people are diving all the way into the, into the nitty gritty details. Yep. So where this philosophy really helps is back to what we were talking about earlier, which is how do you convince researchers and people who are not used to thinking about how they talk to other people. And I personally would expand this that sort of anybody, anybody in a technical anybody, right, role right. who is deep in their domain expertise and needs to communicate that right. to someone else. Yeah, so how do you convince them that what we're talking about with communicating is not dumbing things down. Yep. It's not getting rid of the details and the subtlety and the nuance of all the data and all the research because we're not getting rid of that. We're building on top of it. Yep. So the social media tweet or Facebook post or your op-ed, it's not trying to ignore pieces of the research, but it's trying to reach a different audience, trying to reach them where they are. And if there are members of that audience that want to go into your math or the details, whatever it is, it's going to root all the way back to that. So there's and this base. How do you actually use the pyramid? So are you coaching with researchers to help them understand, or is it something that's used more by the communications team when you're figuring out how to target different layers it's of communication? It's a little bit of both. Yeah. So the way some of the so just one of the tools that we have here, we have on our internal uh, intranet when a researcher has a project that they're going to need communication support, they have to go in and fill out this form that says, okay, so who are your, and we ask some of the questions mm. that we basically ask for, that I ask for presentations, right? Who is your audience? Who do you think is the most important people? And we sometimes ask for like specifics. Yeah. Is it the Senator from Alabama that you want to read? Like, who are they? Um, and, and what do you think best meets the needs of that audience and how can we get them? Then we'll sit down. In terms down. of what sort of communication? Right, and sort of what sort okay. of communications. Then we identify the communications team. So maybe for one project, we need our design team and our data viz team and our blog team. But maybe for another project, we're not going to do a data viz. We need more of the editorial support and we need you know, the, the reporting team because they're going to go out and, and reach those people. So we are trying to build these teams in a more strategic way as opposed to let's just put it out and see what happens. And that's what I think happened early on as Urban, this is probably like five, six, seven years ago, Urban sort of started rethinking its communication efforts. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that early work was we have this great research. I think this happens with a lot of people. We have this great research. It's on you know, criminal justice reform and we've got great data and great ideas. Let's put out the paper and then nothing really happens yeah. to it. And it's because you're not reaching people who need to get to it. So we, have sort of now take a more strategic approach to this where we are thinking about how do we specifically meet people where they are? And, you know, I think a lot of people think, well, if this tweet could reach 5,000 people, 
right? That's what I want. I want to go viral. But the other, the, the counterpoint to that is, do you need to reach 5,000 people or is it the right five people? Yeah, and exactly. what we or the tend, right one person. Or the right one person, right? right? Exactly. And so, yeah, so if like, do you need to reach your colleagues or do you just need to reach the CEO, right? And that's the person you really need to talk to yep. or the policymaker or the funder or whoever it is. So a lot of it is just like we were talking about earlier with presentations is thinking strategically about where you want the research to go, who you want to reach with it and what you want them to do with it at the end of the day. So you've talked about the pyramid philosophy. Are there other foundational tools or concepts or case studies in Elevate the Debate? What other sort of content can people find there? Yeah. So like I said, we have different chapters for each of these different components of good presentations, uh, good communications. And then between each chapter, we have what we call case studies. So there's some study that we published or some event that we held or some outreach that we did at Urban that we had really good success with. So one of those short stories or case studies is our new education uh, policy team. So I think now two years ago, we, we launched a new center that's education policy. And the person who heads that center, economist by the name of Matt Chingos, had recently wrote a book on student loans. So a lot of the work was coming out about student loans. And so as part of the effort to launch this new center, they didn't just say, we're going to do all education and we're going to reach everybody who's doing anything about education, right? We're going to start by focusing on student loans, on higher ed, and that's where we're going to start. And so what that team did is they built the center is they actually sat down with our outreach team. So we have two or three members of our outreach and government affairs team where they said, okay, so who do we want to make sure that your information is getting to those people? So you need to reach the was called the head health education labor subcommittee, right? So how do we reach the department, the people, the right people, at the department of ed, how do we reach the right people with the work that you're doing? So it's, it's more strategic than I think a lot of people think of, think about, but it's also something that doesn't need a 50 person team. Mm -hmm. So uh, the last chapter in, in the book is uh, written by one of our strategic uh, managers, Kate Villarreal. And what she talks about is, it's again, it's another worksheet. Like a lot of the book is worksheets. Like how do you sit down and be strategic about this? Like sit down, what is your purpose? Who are you trying to reach? If you're doing a project on criminal justice reform in Houston, okay, so now you focus on Houston. So you're focusing on the mayor of Houston. You're focusing on return to work advocates in Houston, right? You're, you're, it's, it's more sort of hyper-local in that yep. way. And you sit down and you be strategic about what you want people to do with the research and how you're gonna go get it to them, right? So is it an op-ed? Is it a tweet? Is it a 30-page paper? Is it a two-page fact sheet? And right? what sort of, so if the person who's filling out the worksheet, say, if they, they have an idea of who they need to reach, but maybe not how or the best way, right. what, what do they do then? So the previous seven chapters of the book helps them get to this stage okay. where now they can say, oh, okay, so now I know so from- you gotta read the book to get gotta the read the book, stuff. yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now I know how to, I have, I don't, I've never been on Twitter before. Okay, so here's a whole chapter on how I should use Twitter. Like, okay. and my favorite part from the chapter on social media, and I, I thought this was really smart, is when you start, when you launch a Twitter page, as we talked about, you know, a professional Twitter page, mm -hmm. you might not want it to be, you know, I think the one he uses in the book is chubby hubby 42. Like that's not a particularly, you <laughs> yeah. don't really want to talk about tax reform under that handle, right? But the recommendation from our, our social media manager, uh, Dave Connell, is don't just start following everybody 
and expect them to follow you back. You need to have a sort of library of content in your Twitter feed. So the story he tells in the book is, I get this newsletter from you know some organization that I follow, and the, and the, and the email says our CEO or president is going to join Twitter and follow this person for you know more information and get what we get. So Dave clicks the link, it goes to the Twitter page, and there's no content, there's no tweets. Mm -hmm. So Dave doesn't follow that person and sure. never does. So instead of just launching into Twitter, you know, build up sort of this library of, of content, as you will, and then people come to that that page with, with when something. When it doesn't even need to all be original no, content, right? No, there's exactly. It just be stuff that you're sharing. Something. Right, yeah. exactly, exactly. I think, and rightfully so, people, a lot of people get, turned off by social media. And I think there's a lot of reasons why, and you know, and there are a lot of issues with social media, especially when it comes to harassment and addiction and all of these things. And I think there's certainly issues with all of that. I mean, personally, my Twitter feed is generally a lovely place to be like, you know, but it's just my little, yeah, our little community, corner, right? Yeah. So let's see, another example would be in the chapter on talking to reporters. I mean, I think, I don't think I'd go out on a limb to say a lot of researchers are introverts mm -hmm. and are not particularly comfortable talking to reporters. And I think a lot of people think that reporters are trying to burn them or find, you know, get a gotcha question. Mm -hmm. And what our, our head of our media team has taught me is, you know, me in particular, and hopefully people who read the book is that researchers are relying on the person they're interviewing for information. Yep. And, and, and for knowledge. And they're not trying to, they're just trying to do their job of writing a story and they want the content and they want, you know, good, smart people to talk to. So it's not about being scared of those people, but it is, you know, it does take skill to be able to talk to reporters and know how to do that. The one, like I'm sort of like telling you like the my favorite parts, but the one thing that I took away from the, we do some trainings here and, and it's in the book obviously, is that when you do an interview for say, you know, a newspaper, the reporter almost always, we'll ask at the very end of the interview, is there anything else you'd like to add, mm -hmm. right? They give you this little space at the end. Yeah. And the answer to that question is always yes. 100% of the time you should say yes. And you can use that time to restate an answer, reframe something because you've warmed up, you've gotten through the interview. Maybe you can say it in kind of a better way or maybe there's something that you left out that you want to come back to. So the answer to that question is always yes. Um, so these well, little And that's nuggets, actually a place yeah. coming back to the pyramid. If you think about further up the pyramid when you've got the pithy, so what? Right. Like restate that. Right, then. exactly, <laughs> right. So you've got that, right? Because if you think about a newspaper article, you know, yeah, give them the headline. Yeah, they're not quoting a paragraph of what you said. They want that little concise active phrase that really, you know, like you said, that, that pithy statement that really gets to the core of it. Yeah. Awesome. I want to shift gears because okay. I put a note out to the Storytelling with Data community and said, right? what questions do you have for John Schwab? <laughs> uh -oh. This brings us more back on the presentation okay. side of things. Let's see. Ali had a good, simple question, which is, what do you think is the best way to begin a presentation? She says, I always feel stuck and unfortunately begin with today. I'm going to talk about. Mm. So it's a great question. Thanks, Ali. Hi, Ali. I always like to start with what I am. What is my bottom line? So in my little worksheet we talked about earlier, I have a space in that where I actually write down my opening statement. So I don't memorize my talks. I mean, I know you don't memorize your talks because it sounds yeah. stilted. Well, and, and if you memorize, if you get off track, then you're like, you're like you're totally lost. lost right? Because we're not actors, yeah. right? But I do tend to memorize like the first two or three sentences yep. because what I've done is I've, I've crafted that really carefully because I want it to be concise. I want it to be, you know, really active. And if I memorize it, I, I can really craft it carefully. And I also know... 
the first moment and the last moment of the talk is when people pay the most attention, yep. right? So I think a lot of people will say, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Like that's like, don't start with that. And the one technique that I, I tell, I've recommended to people is if your habit is to say, thank you for having me. I'm here to tell you about X, Y, and Z. Say that first phrase, thank you for having me, just in your head mm. and then start talking. Mm -hmm. So you say it, but you, no one will hear except for you because that pause is fine at the very beginning. Yes. Pauses are very powerful because yes. you pause and everyone's like, uh oh, something's wrong. Um, so instead of saying today, what I'm going to talk about this with you is I think that the need for X, Y, and Z is really important. So I get right to what is the bottom line. And I try to be right from the get-go, super enthusiastic, even maybe a little loud, yep. especially if you're at like an academic conference or even there's a lot of speakers, like you want something that grabs people's attention, right? So it's a good, it's a great question. And it's the same thing for at the end. Yes. The other thing I'll say at the end, cause this, I've, I've been trying to do this a little bit more. So at the end, same thing, you have maximum engagement, you know, two points of maximum engagement at the very end. You want to end with that concise closing statement. And then a lot of times we have this like Q and A, but mm -hmm. it's like 10, 15 minutes or whatever it is of Q and A. The one thing that I've been trying to do more myself and I've, and I've been trying to recommend it to people is that have your closing statement ready to go again. Yes. So that like, you know, Cole, you have some, you have some question. I answer the question. And then usually people are like, all right, thanks a lot. Thanks. And you sort of, yeah. And you sort of end on this like down note. Right. Whereas opposed to, you know, thanks for your question, you know, something along yeah. the lines of leaving here today. Yeah. Right. Leaving here, just to recast yeah. or as yeah. you're, you know, walking out the door, don't forget, you know, whatever it is, you want to kind of get back up to that, that high well, point. And that's again, where having that, knowing what that is ahead of time and having practiced yeah. it and where you can hit the delivery of yeah. it can make a big difference. So, so, okay. So, like so, too. but while we're here, so what do you, so what do you do to start? I, so I am totally fine. And this was a developed, uh, yeah. comfort, I should say. I will stand awkwardly on the stage without saying anything mm. until I have everybody's, everybody's attention. attention and then I launch in. Yeah. And when it's, it depends on the, you know, the scenario in the audience, uh, for anything big audiences, mm -hmm. uh, cause for me, you, you always see people get lost when someone introduces themselves. Yes. And so I, I don't introduce myself. Yeah. I, I skip over that entirely and right. I just launch into whatever the thing yeah. is. I often like to start with a story. Mm-hmm. I have this story of Charles Schwab and his. Oh, you have uh, like a go-to. I have like a go-to story. Oh. That Charles Schwab has a story he tells in his books about, you know, basically improving one of the steel firms, you know, steel plants, and and how he used data to basically do that. I put up this one slide, this picture of the steel mill, and I just, I start with back in the early part of the 20th century, right? Like that's how the whole thing starts, yeah. right? So it's just starting with the story. Yeah. Because how do you bring that back around? Because I I haven't figured out the. So I bring it back to in this in, the, <laughs> in this case, like I bring it back to, because basically the story is he. I don't want to tell the whole story. Yeah, no, but but no, story. it's okay because uh, uh, the story. Well, how is, do you how do you transition from the story from the story into, into what the thing? Comes because next. the the story particularly if what comes next could be vastly different across presentations. Well, that's okay. So yeah, so I don't use it all the time. Okay. But yeah, but but because it's relevant to visualizing data. And the way that this story ends yeah. is essentially Schwab writes the number of units of steel that this mill created over the course of the day. I make the case that when you are visualizing your data, it doesn't have to be the most complex thing. It can be a simple number, yep. right? And then launching into, yeah. okay, so how can we build up from that 
maybe that's like one of the most simplest, simple visualizations you can create is the number six, right? So how do we build up from there and do it in a smart, effective way? Yeah, and that's smart, right? Of building people's anticipation yeah. and their, their, their wanting to know right. how it's how going it's gonna to end. relevant right. yeah, and exactly. how you're going to bring it back. So, oh, this is a, oh, how is this story going to end? Yeah. And why do I care about Charles Schwab, right? Yeah. yeah. So a related, sort of related question on exposition. Copley, which I might be saying incorrectly, and I uh, apologize if so, asks, typically I format presentations with some sort of exposition. Tell them what you're going to tell them, body, tell them, and recap, tell them what you told them. Mm -hmm. Do you have any tips for creating that exposition piece? I often get so caught up on what to say in that slide that I sometimes miss the point. <laughs> so this is the, the the middle slide on the content? No, I think this is the beginning. The, the beginning slide. What you're going to tell oh, them. Oh, what you're sort going to tell the them. Laying out what is to come. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I like to show a picture that goes along with the story because it's not too much information. It's just the visual cue. I guess I would flip it around and say at the very end, what I do is I put, and, I, and I've done this at the beginning, but mostly at the end is I put like the headline. Mm -hmm. So I've written down on that worksheet we talked about, I've written down my headline for the whole talk. You should do X, Y, and Z to cut down on homelessness. And in this your is city. what you launch into at the beginning. This is what I launch into. And then I'm going to use that same sentence yep. on its own slide at the very end, instead of what, especially in, in research, what people do is they write questions, question yep. mark, right? Or thank you, exclamation point, right? Or thank you, comma, questions, right? Um, so so um, at the very end, at least, I like to have that thing, that statement up there. And a lot of academic conferences, there's, you know, a good maybe 20, 30 minutes of questions yeah. that, you know, can be for the whole panel. So I love to go last because, hey, my sentence sits up there for 20 minutes. Yep. But to the point of the questioner's point, you know, I think if you can sit down and really think about what is the core of the idea? Like what is the, if you had to write a tweet about your 60 minute presentation of your 200 page paper, what would the tweet be? Maybe not even 200, what do we have? 280 characters now? 240, well, however many characters we're allowed to use with links and all that and the emojis and all that, like even shorter than that. But like, what is the tweet that you would use? And that's where you can start to build, you know, build up from there. And maybe that's how you start with this, launching into the exposition. But I personally, I really like to start with stories because as you said, and as you've written about, right, there is an arc to stories yeah. and there's an anticipation to how this is going to turn out. And if you tell a story that is seemingly, at least at the start, irrelevant yeah. to your content, you've really grabbed people's attention. Because I start this whole story with, in the early part of the 20th century, Charles Schwab was a steel magnate. He owns steel mills all around People the country. People are thinking they've they're shown like, up to the wrong presentation. Yeah, they're like, what is this guy talking about? Like, this is not data viz. And then you hook it back. Yep. And then they see the relevance. And then you and then you can move from there. Augusto asks, what is the last tweak you usually make in a presentation? I that thought this a, was a fun one. That is a fun one. The last tweak I usually make. There is probably, there's probably two. You can have two. I can have two. Okay. So I think there's definitely two. So on my beginning or ending slide, I'll have, we'll use the beginning slide. There's like the title and there'll be my name and usually Twitter handle. And I think for whatever reason, every time I go back to the slide and look at that, I want to adjust the spacing. Like I haven't mm. quite got it just right, but I think more often than not, there'll usually be a picture or an image with text on it or around it or something. And I'm not always... 100% satisfied with how it lays out on the picture, right? So when I'm looking for pictures in my slides, I'm looking for 
blurry areas or transitions or white space. But, you know, sometimes if you like think about a picture of a city where you have like the buildings at the bottom part and then maybe it transitions to like a blue sky at the top, and the blue sky stretches across the entire width of the slide. Well, so it's easy to put text there. But that's like the rare occasion. Usually it's like there's this little like corner of the slide where you have like blank space. And so I've, I, I think the last tweaks I usually make is to go back to those, make sure, okay, is the... So you're rearranging elements. I'm little, yeah. Um, yeah, doing these like little fine tuning. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of... I think it's definitely like the last things are the fine tuning. And then if I'm really like have a little more time, maybe I'm thinking about, you know, should I add a little animation to this? Like I don't use a lot of animations on my slides, but I've been using a little bit more, some more of the softer mm -hmm. animations and transitions to sort of soften the hmm. slide one to slide two is like, here's one, here's two. As a, maybe I do like more of a softer, like fade into slide two. And mm -hmm. I will use those in careful ways where I want someone to be able to see that I am doing this transition from one thought to the next. Um, so it's a careful strategic way as opposed to like, you know, I'm not using blinds or swirly stuff or anything yeah. like that. Right no now. flying, jumping. <laughs> yeah. All right. I want to try something new next. Uh -oh. And you actually, you mentioned this earlier, this okay. idea of word association, yes. right? Because there are a few things that I think would be fun to just sort of rapid fire okay. at you. But what I want to know is, do you love it? Do you hate it? And what tips do you have for folks on how do you be effective with the thing? And this will make more sense okay. once I tell you. So it's love it or hate it to start. Love it or hate it. Okay. And then what tip uh, <laughs> do you have that you might want to okay. share related to All it? All right. So first off, pre-reads. Okay. So because I, I think we have discovered in this conversation <laughs> is that we have, uh, we deal with sometimes different audiences. Yes. So, okay. So I want you to define pre-reads. Uh, so pre-read, the way I would define it is something you need to send around to your audience before you have the presentation. And let's assume oh. based on your definitions, this is your, you know, where you show up to your sort of seminar, you're going right. to talk to your colleagues about right. something. Oh, see, pre-reads, <sighs> love it, hate it. Oh, you're Tips making, on being you're, successful. You're making, okay. So I'm going to say love it with a caveat. Okay. I hate them, by the way. You hate them. Yeah, but that's okay. okay. So, well, this is this is good. I'm going to enjoy this. So, uh, I I have the caveat because there are different audiences and, yes. and scenarios. Yes. So, I would say for meetings, for your sort of general meeting, I love them because I want the meeting to be. I want us to. We should be having the meeting for a purpose, yep. and we should be getting to some answer. And if we're spending our meeting reading something that we should already know, so you like it from the efficiency from standpoint. the efficiency standpoint, right? And I would say I like it in the case where I'm presenting, say, an academic paper, which is usually usually the way, especially economic or yep. at least economics works. There's a written paper people go through, and then there's a presentation. And the reason that works really well is because the presenter then doesn't necessarily need to go through all the detail of yeah. the math, right? So in general, I love them. What tips do you have for people being successful with them? Let's talk about the meeting one, because that's kind of the more yep. fun one in some ways. I think the thing that we just don't do in general, the world maybe, is we're just not thinking about people's time. We have a 30 minute meeting and we're gonna spend half of that time, and we need to come to a decision. We're gonna spend half of that time talking about Things that people could read. Right, things that people could read, right? And if you think about, and, and yes, people have to read the thing on their own. And that's why I hate them. And that's, because <laughs> they're not going to do it. But if, see. Or no, some do and some don't. And then you've got this really mixed okay, so playing then, field. So then, okay, so, okay. So then is it a problem with the pre-read itself? Or is that a culture problem that we're, that people aren't expected to read it? Similar 
why do meetings start five or 10 minutes late? Like all the time, yeah. because it's, it's part of the culture, yeah. right? And so I think if we, and there's a transition to get from a place where our meetings end 10, start 10 minutes late and we read, you know, we go through the kind of, we should be reading. And so we're being inefficient to a place where people are reading stuff before they get there and we're spending 30 minutes, I was gonna say arguing, but discussing yes. the, con the, yeah. the productive content. And, and I don't exactly know how to change that culture, I think one way is to try to price it out, right? Because you say there's 10 people in this meeting. Okay? Oh, to actually every person put, makes, you really mean put dollars yeah, on put it. Dollars, every, yeah, put dollars because every person makes X dollars a year yeah. plus their benefits divided by 2,000 hours, yeah. right? And this is how much it makes, We each person here makes per hour. So this meeting is costing us $5,000. Interesting. All right, yeah. next okay. rapid fire. Okay, Presence. that wasn't so rapid, by no, the way. No, it wasn't rapid at all. It's not going to be. Okay. We're both right. too verbose. Uh, I think I know which well, I know which direction you're going to go okay. with this, so I'm going to throw it out right. anyway. Presentation templates. I hate them. Really? Yeah. That's not where well, I thought you would go. No, because well, aren't you in the process of redesigning a presentation I, template? Well, yes, but, oh God, see, again, I have to put a caveat on That's it. Okay. Like, I think when you say template, I think of these websites where I like download this whole thing. Okay, let me yeah. actually totally reframe this okay, then okay. and make it a style guide. Okay, love them. Okay. Yeah, so I so I love this. I love style guides because, well, for many reasons, but one especially is that they reduce the barrier to for a lot of people. So a lot of people say, I don't have time to think about how to make a new graph or a better slide because I have to worry about which line should be blue and which one should be black and yeah. which one should be yellow. And if you say to them, don't worry about it. We're going to make that decision for you. And we're going to tell you what font you have to use and how big the chart should be. But then, Sorry, I have to butt in because yeah. why can't we then also have a presentation template that does so, that? So that's why I originally said hate it yeah. because, you know, you go to these, there's a lot of websites out there where you download these templates and they're sort of generic. It's like, it's like the default PowerPoint ones on steroids as opposed to a template that's customized for your organization yep. or, or company or whatever. Just one quick plug. So there's this book by Echo Swinford and Julie Cherberg on designing template PowerPoint templates that I think is like the best book. Hmm. And one of the things that it, they, they talk about in the book is how like, if you have a color palette, you can use the gray area outside the slide that yes. you could put, for example, like the color palette for your, like yes, it's, it's built in, That's but smart. it's also like, it's also sitting there so that people can, can use it. So we're not, I'm not being very good at this, this rapid fire. It's okay. Um, Failed experiment. It's, no, still like the, it's still fun. It's still fun. It's still fun. So I think I think in general I, I do like templates because it helps people. It helps people get over some of their wariness about being designers. Mm -hmm. They're not designers, mm -hmm. and they don't want to be designers, right? They just want to make a graph and move on to the next well, thing. And so I find sometimes people crave rules and guidelines, yeah. and it helps. Set it does. I mean, it does help, right? Like. I don't have to think about if I have an Excel template and I don't have to think about what size the title should be because you told me it's mm -hmm. 16 point font and it's in Calibri or whatever it is. Well, right? And then it's consistent. And then if yeah, your slide looks, has to be pulled in with a slide. Right. And, right. And you know, you can recognize that report from that organization. It has that same feel. Um, and I can, and, and the person, you know, you, you always hope, I mean, you know this, right? You always hope that people are going to spend time thinking about their graphs and thinking about their viz. You but, you know, most of them probably don't. And probably most, many of them, like the bar chart is fine. Like the bar chart. There's nothing wrong with the bar no, chart. No, no, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, like, <laughs> they don't need to think about, yeah, yeah. like, 
you know, even not even like a network diagram, like just, you know, whatever, a heat map or spark line. So they, it's a bar chart. That's all they need. Yep. And so you've taken this barrier down to be like, how do I make a good bar chart? Uh, it's a button. Don't worry about it. It's all going to be solved for you with the click of this button. Yeah. So I, I generally uh, like them, but there are the ones that are like on steroids that I you know, don't like. So. All right. One more of these. Okay. Resistant audiences. Can I say I love them? Yeah, I would say I love them. I love them, right? Because you have to really work yes. to get them on your exciting. side. Yeah, it really does get exciting. Now, I will say there are sometimes, oftentimes, it's not the audience that's resistant. There's like one person that's resistant. And what do you do? What tips do you have when that's the case? How do you, so I, how do you, you bring know, them over? You know, it's always the, uh, what's the saying? It's like you win more flies with honey, honey than I salt. No, I don't know. I don't what know what that, what, yeah. So I try vinegar? to, yeah. vinegar? Well, it could be vinegar. Know. Let's say vinegar. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't sound right to me. But uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you try to be, nice you try to be respectful i mean i think you if you when you get to the point where not that the person becomes belligerent but it is sidetracking the entire discussion and you can often see it i mean you can see you know you have this person who keeps asking questions yep. you can see them getting agitated and you can see people around them looking at the person being like you know come on already right you can well, always depending on who the person well is, depending on who the person right? is but you can you can often, if not always say, you know, these are great questions. I'm really happy to have this conversation with you, but I want to make sure that I can finish my, you know, my presentation. So let's, you know, let's talk afterwards. I mean, I don't think there's anything, I've never had a case where I've said that and the person's like, no, I want to talk now. Right. So, so I, I think it's okay to, to, to pull people aside or to say that you'll pull, talk later. Cause I think people, they do want to express themselves but they're also sort of conscious of the world mm -hmm. around them. And I think broadening this discussion a little bit, like if you're on a panel or if you're a moderator of a panel, I think it's the moderator's job to diffuse those situations. And also whenever I moderate, you like, I make a point of saying in the Q and a section, we're here for questions. We are not here for you to go on a rant and for you to like make your position known. Yep. That's what our panelists are here for. This is the time for questions. So um, I think it's about, yeah, sugar, not, vinegar or some other thing <laughs> we'll have to look that up after yeah <laughs> it's terrible we should know that yeah all right all right you want to do one more rapid fire do you have any more i do but i, I, I'm gonna, I, can, I'm gonna I, let I got one, one for go. you okay but i know what the answer is gonna be that's fine okay i asked you things all right knowing what the answers would be <laughs> okay ready index cards or post-it notes oh yeah you know which way i'm going <laughs> with that although i mean so i would clearly go post-it right. notes i i like the fact that they stick i mean you see me I, I, i'm, I'm I looking at your notebook things, right here i lose things yep. i yeah so my notebook in front of me i have it's open it's a spiral bound and there are post-it notes, post notes all over it. both sides right if the, if i were doing it on index cards and i will say you know whatever works yeah, you yeah, use yeah. whatever works right. but I'd have them all over. They'd be disorganized. I would feel really uncomfortable. Right. So for me, posts are how I plan everything in my life. So I like index cards mm -hmm. for presentations. Could be, you like to reshuffle them. RJ Andrews uses okay. index cards yeah. as well. He, like I've seen, yeah, his piles yeah, of index I, And I like to, and, I, and like I'll work in multiple places. Yeah. So I'll work in my home office. I'll work in the office here at Urban. So I'll, you know, push them all together, yeah. wrap a rubber band, rubber band around them and take them with me. And you can't really do that with post-it notes. No, except you, you have your notebook. 
where you can Which sort of is move like around. Sort yeah. of a brute forcing of the <laughs> thing. I index cards, I would lose them or things would get disorganized. And I yeah. like to be able to, I, for me, there's something valuable about being able to see everything yes. at once. Yep. And so I spread them out. Yeah. So like when I use post-it notes at home, when I'm storyboarding or something, I have massive sheets of paper yeah, yeah, that yeah. I do it on. I mean, so don't you think we should have bought stock in 3M like oh, yeah. years ago? Yeah. 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 Okay. I think I have one more. <laughs> this is fun. Yeah, I fun. wasn't prepared to we do this. We should maybe but... do this for an entire podcast at some point. <laughs> okay. This is really one more for my son than anything else. Okay. okay. Storytelling with data, mints or M&Ms? Oh, this is a tough one. I'm going to go mints. Mints, okay. So John knows and his <laughs> kids know. Hi, Jack. Uh, that, yeah, we've had some fun with branding swag, <laughs> which include mints with little bar charts on them and right. M&Ms, M&Ms with little bar charts right. on them. Okay. And actually, I love the fact that the M&Ms are blue, gray, right. and white. <laughs> yes, I think right. that's a nice assortment. Yep. But the mints, they come in this cute little, little tin, tin and yep. they last forever. Yep. Jack likes to shake them, you know. So, right. so John, it has been a pleasure yes, as I knew fun. it would be. Uh, any final thoughts to leave people with? So the answer is always, the answer is always, yes. The answer is always final thoughts. So I think if you are the kind of person whose job it is to work with data, which is probably a hundred percent of your listeners, right? If it is your job to work with data, conduct analysis, conduct research, it's not enough to just write up your results and put it out in the world and hope that people are going to come to it. You need to do some work to bring people to that content. And that might be through better data visualization. It might be through better presentations. Um, but I think it's also about the planning and the strategic phase of things that you can't just put it out and expect people to come that you need to think really carefully about who is the most important person I want to read this report or see this graph, right? Um, is it a policymaker? Is it a stakeholder? Is it a funder? Is it a colleague? And I think if we can spend, we being all of us really, spend a little more time thinking more strategically about what, how we want to impact the world and who we think can help us do that, I think we'll all be better off because we'll be able to better target our work to those particular people and those particular groups. Where can people follow you? They can follow me on Twitter, uh, at Jay Schwabish. They can follow me on my website, policyviz.com. If they're really brave, they can follow me on Instagram, but I'll warn them that my Instagram feed is only pictures of warning signs. (laughs) It's all it is. I'm not going to even go there right now. We will link to all of those as well as all the other resources that John has mentioned in the show notes. If you haven't already, be sure to check out John's book, Better Presentations, and also the forthcoming Elevate the Debate. Thanks for joining, John, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Cole.